listen, guys, we're in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18. Why don't you turn there and we will get started. We'll jump uh, right in just a second. Um, 1 Kings 18, we are doing this thing called Prophets and Kings. It's a way for us to see the gospel and the story of Israel. This is so important. The gospel did not start in the book of Matthew. It started in Genesis. And we see how God moves and works in so many different ways throughout the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the way uh, Israel interacted with God and each other and maybe false idols and their culture around them. There's a lot for us to take away from this. Here's what I want us to see. Uh, In 1 Kings chapter 11, because of Solomon's sin, we see that the kingdom of Israel, which was all 12 tribes, it had a split. So Israel splits. Now I'll put this graphic up here. You have Jeroboam and Rehoboam, remember. Jeroboam is the king of the northern kingdom of the 10 tribes. Rehoboam is the southern king. He's the king of Judah is what we call it. Uh, He's the king of two tribes, essentially. Judah, Benjamin, some of the Levites. Um, This is what you have, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. This might be confusing because when we say Israel, normally I'm referring to all 12. I think that's the hope and desire for the heart of God is that Israel would be united, all 12. But Sally, it split up. Um, Sally became the north and the south. It is weird that, you know, I always, you know, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, isn't called Israel, they're called Judah. And even though he's like the son, continuing from David to Solomon. But then you have Jeroboam. The reason why I bring this up is um, as we read through the Old Testament, it can get confusing. Like what king was where? Was he the northern kingdom king or southern kingdom king? Which, who's this prophet? Did the prophet minister in the north and the south? Both. Wait, you have the minor prophets? Wait, Amos, who's that? Obadiah? When did they, when, did, when, when and where were they prophets? Our hope is actually as we work through this, we'll kind of break this down a bit so it will be more clear. Um, here's where we're at so far on the list. With the northern kingdom, what we have from chapter 12 on here to 18, in the northern kingdom, you have seven different kings. <laughs> right now, we're focused on Ahab. Why? They kind of rush pretty quickly through these kings of Omri and Elah and Zimri, all these kings. When it gets to Ahab, it slows down. Ahab is really notorious as the most wicked king, probably ever, north and south. He probably goes down as the most wicked king, him and his wife, Jezebel. And we'll get to that story in a couple of weeks. But this is kind of what we see. So you see Elijah come on the scene. And now Elijah is a prophet specifically or primarily to the northern kingdom. Elijah, as we saw last week in chapter 17, kind of comes out of nowhere. Elijah is basically this prophet of prophets. I know you guys might know this, but um, when you think of like uh, maybe Jewish history or the story of Israel, you have a, a couple big figures. Obviously, Moses is a huge figure. He's the giver of the law. But then you have Elijah, who's kind of like the prophet of prophets. If you guys know, even to this day, you know, uh, during Passover, the Jews leave a seat open for Elijah. Actually, even during circumcision, When they circumcise a child, a boy, they'll actually leave a seat open for Elijah. Elijah's a huge character to them. He's a huge person in their history. Elijah's basically saying, what are you doing, like, to the north? You are pursuing other gods. You're intermingling with the culture of the day. You're combining the one true God with other faiths, other religions, and acting like it's the same thing. And he's basically calling them to repentance. Elijah's a fun character to study, man. I mean, he's obviously mentioned uh, throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, He's a, a fascinating guy, so we want to kind of slow down as we're in, the, in these texts of, about Elijah and his work and his ministry and what he's doing. Elijah simply means Yahweh is my God. And you kind of see that theme throughout this time looking at Elijah. He's like, hey, there's one true God. Worship him. That's it. There's one true God. Yahweh is the one true God. That's his name, Elijah. Yahweh is my God. He needs to be your God. Elijah is an awesome character. I love him. It's fun to look at him. And here's where we're at. In chapter 17, last week, we saw Elijah basically pronounce a drought. He's, in a sense, not really, but he caused the drought 
There's a drought on the land. God provides for him in unique ways. God brings Elijah to this poor widow whose son dies. Elijah resurrects her, her son, comes back to life. I mean, this guy really moved with weight and authority and power. And here he is now in chapter 18. And it goes to the one, one of the most famous, I think, texts of the Old Testament. It's the showdown between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. It's a fascinating kind of showdown. And it's, it's a fun text to look at. There's so much power here. There's so much weight here. There's so much gospel here. And I want us to see the gospel here. So when I say that, um, I want to kind of prep you with where we're at. We're going to pick up in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. That's where we're going to pick up today. Let me explain really quick. Obadiah was a believer in God, the one true God. He actually worked for Ahab. He actually hid 100 prophets, 100 true prophets from Ahab, from Jezebel. Obadiah was a good guy, kind of like just a Christian, in some ways in disguise, working for Ahab, but he kept other believers alive. Elijah and Obadiah meet. Elijah says, Obadiah, schedule a meeting with your boss. I need to meet him. So here's where we pick up. 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to read verse 17 through uh, verse 40. Um, and the reason I want to do that is just so we can kind of get a big picture of what's going on here. 1 Kings chapter 18. You guys ready? Yes? Good morning. You've had your coffee? You okay? Okay. 1 Kings 18. You're going to need it for this story. 1 Kings 18 verse 17. So here's Ahab, the king of the north, the evil king. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? <laughs> and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel, or Mar Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, so all of Israel gathers, and they gathered at the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of the Lord your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answered by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah, verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Verse 26, and they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon for hours saying, oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around at the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, <laughs> saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep, but he must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the obligation. But there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, 
and he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. (laughs) And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the the, uh, oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. I like that phrase. It licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Like that's, it's him. It's him. He wins. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. Welcome to the Old Testament Bible. It's awesome. Um, why don't we just pray? The, the title today is what Elijah said. What he said simply and so beautifully, if the Lord is God, serve him. If the Lord is God, follow him. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you, God, that um, this is more than a, a story. This is obviously something that literally took place, yes. But God, we're so thankful that you see us, you hear us, that God, you move Lord, you come to us. Lord, I ask that um, you would just be in this place, that you would speak, that we'd hear from you. God, if we've been hard in our hearts or just maybe we're tired, we're exhausted, we're frustrated, Lord, maybe we've been serving other Baals, other gods, other things. Jesus, we ask that you would take your rightful place. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your blood that was shed. And we just ask Jesus that you would speak and move and um, let the word of God be living and powerful and cut to our heart, Lord. In your wonderful name, amen. You know, there are a lot of famous and well-known showdowns that are kind of fun to look back. I love a good mono a mono kind of, you know, showdown. I think of like the Thrilla in Manila. You guys know that one, right? Where you have uh, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier, third time, all he wins. You have the Rumble in the Jungle. Again, Muhammad Ali, but this time George Foreman. Is it George Foreman? How's that his name? Everyone's named George Foreman, I think, in this family. Uh, But you have that famous rumble in the jungle, and he wins that one. I don't know why it's all boxing kind of themed stuff. But you have like a showdown like the, uh, my father-in-law loved this movie called Tombstone. He'd like force us to watch Tombstone. Like anytime he's on TV, he's like, you're sitting there and watch Tombstone. We're like, okay. And it's the shootout at the OK Corral, you know, between like Wired Earp and the, versus like the Cowboys. And he's like, this is the scene. And I don't know, it just burned in my head. Like that was like a famous showdown. When people think Wild West, they think of an event at the, the shootout, the OK Corral. Like, that literally happens. 
you know, I, I, for me growing up, this is so st- stupid and silly, but I have this visual picture of mine. We had, we had two bunnies growing up. All right, two bunnies, Coco and Thumper. Fun bunnies. Thumper thumps. You know, that's why I named it Thumper. I don't know, your kid, Disney, Thumper. Coco was a dark colored bunny. It was awesome. Thumper versus Coco. Um, they were like dogs. We could call them. We could like say, Thump, like, Thumper, Coco. They, they came. It was bizarre. Like, they, they, I don't know, they did tricks. They're, like, they're literally dogs. I don't know. They were not, they were not bunnies. <laughs> we just had like these two little bunny dogs. Um, but they did this weird thing. I remember as a kid, I was just like, always have it burned in my mind. They'd go into our backyard. They'd go to the opposite ends of the yard. They really did this. They'd stare at each other and they'd sprint as fast as they could. They'd jump in the air and they'd claw each other like a bunch of times and then land. And they'd both like, be like shaking. And then they'd walk away and they sprint at each other, run as fast as they could, jump in the air, and, cl- and I'm like, my brother and I would like watch by the window. We're like, do you see them? Like Thumper versus Coco, like put money on it. Who's gonna win? It was the weirdest thing. We, yes, we, we didn't we didn't like force the bunnies to fight. Okay, they just did this. They just ran, jumped in the air, clawed each other. I mean, one had to go to the vet. It was bad. One got a really bad injury. We took. Like, there are dogs. I don't know, but it's like that was like a famous showdown to me. In my mind, like Thumper versus Coco. Let's go. Who's gonna win? There, there's so many well-known, famous showdowns. I think none of them get more famous than this in the Old Testament. Like in all of the Bible, the most famous, well-known showdown is between really Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. Yes, there's 400 other prophets, but they didn't seem to show up. So it's Elijah versus the 450 prophets of Baal. And basically, Elijah's like, hey, we need to decide right now who is the one true God. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But we can't really play games anymore. Like we need to know. Hey, Israel, you've been serving other gods for far too long. We need this contest. We need this showdown. Let's go. I find this fascinating. So here's what I want to do. We're going to kind of walk through the text in really three points in case you're like, what is this story? What's the purpose of this? This seems kind of intense. Here's the first point we're going to look at. Number one is this. The contest is necessary. The contest is necessary. Number two, the false god is silent. Number three, the true god is revealed. All right, so let me just say this. The contest is necessary. Elijah's like, I've had it. We need to have a, like a final showdown. Who's the one true God? We've got to stop playing games here. Some of you want to act like you can serve God on Sunday and then serve God, uh, Baal on Monday. No, no. We need to figure this out. And so here's kind of how this starts. Let's kind of get the context of what's going on. Ahab and Elijah finally meet. Uh, Elijah, in many ways, is the one who caused the drought. He pronounced the drought on Israel. Ahab's the evil king. He's like, there's gonna be a drought in the land. For three years plus, there's been a drought. And so what does Ahab say in verse 17? Look at the verse. It says, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Is it you, you troubler of Israel? This is actually kind of a language used, like a, it's like almost like a satanic word, meaning like you're the devil. You're the, you're the Satan of Israel. You're the troubler. It's another title kind of used for Satan. That's you. He's like, me? Because you've disobeyed God's commandments, you're the one. You're the reason why there's a drought. I don't know, I just love this back and forth. He's like, no, that's enough. Let's figure this out. We need to know who is the one true God. You and your wife have been serving different Baals. You've been serving different gods. We're going to find out today who's the one true God. By the way, the word Baal is a term that's used not just for like one God. Like Baal is like one, don't think one, think many Baals. There are many. He actually says that in verse 18. He talks about the idea of like the Baals. There was a Baal for everything. There was essentially a God for everything, which we'll, we'll look at. But I want you to see, is like, we need to figure this out. Notice this, that again, right away, um, the issues that were in Israel is because of Elijah's fault. That's what Ahab really believed. You're the reason why we're in this drought. You're, you're the problem with the world, Elijah. We're trying to do our own thing, but you're, you're the one messing things up. This has kind of been the story of Christians throughout the centuries, by the way. The story of Christians throughout the centuries is like, gosh, you guys just bug us. Christians, what are you doing? Culture's going in one way. Can't you just get on board? And we're like, nah, we really can't. It's like, ah, you frustrate us Christians. You think about Nero starting, Caesar Nero, 
He was one of the most um, terrible rulers to ever basically martyr, kill Christians. He basically started a fire, we know in Rome historically. He starts a fire and he blames the Christians. Because why? The, they're just obnoxious, these Christians. You know, a, a famous researcher, uh, Ham, Jay Hammond, said the first Christians were called the enemies of the human race. Like, that's what they're known for. The, listen to that. The first Christians were called the enemies of the human race. Basically, like, ah, oh, you Christians, what are you doing? You kind of always get in the way. Like, just let us mutilate our children. Let us just destroy them in the womb. Let us do that. Stop fighting against this. Christians have always been, kind of been that obnoxious pebble in the culture's shoe. And I love that. That's, that's Ahab's view of Elijah. He's like, I'm so frustrated by you. We, because of you, we have a drought. He's like, it's not because of me. It's because you've disobeyed God, there's a drought. It's because you've walked away from God, there's a drought. You're, you're blaming someone else when you're the reason for it. And so he goes, you know what? And put the verse up. Like, let's, let's gather. Verse 19, it says, Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. He goes, let's go. Let's meet at Mount Carmel, your prophets, 850, only 450 show up, 450 verse 1. He basically is trying to stack the odds in his favor. Like, Mount Carmel, by the way, was a very sacred place to the worshipers of Baal. This was like a, just so you know, anytime you see, if you go to Greece, if you go to Italy, if you go to Israel, if you go anywhere, if you see a hill, there most likely was a church. There's probably a church there currently. There probably was a temple to a pagan god. Like anytime there's a high mount, if there's a, it's basically a hill. If there's a hill or a mountain of any sort, there's most likely at one point in time was a temple to some pagan god or currently there's a church there or something like that. Mount Carmel was like the high point for the Baals. This is their home turf. This is their territory. He's like, let's go to your home turf. And let's go 450 verse 1. Let's do that. We'll stack the odds in your favor. He's like, I'll be the minority. You can have the majority. I'm in Israel. The people, the 10 tribes, you, Ahab, were on your, your, were on your place. It's okay if it's not in my favor. Obviously, I love this because this is so fascinating to me. It's like, all right, he seems to be the minority. But think about this, obviously. You have one guy with God. He's the majority. It, it doesn't matter if the numbers are stacked against them. It doesn't matter if the territories, their land. It's like, if it's just you and God, guess what? You're, you're the majority. Don't feel like you're the minority at that point. However, let's be real. Um, he seems, like, how incredibly disturbing would this be if like, you show up, you have the, all 10 tribes. He said, gather all of Israel. You have the 10 tribes there. You have Ahab. You have the prophets of Baal, and it's you. And you're the only one. You're the only one who believes in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Israel, Jacob. You're the only one. And you show up, and you're the minority there. And you're like, Lord, show up. Do your best work. You know, the Lord obviously can thrive when the odds are against him. And I think there's something we have to believe about that. Like, when it's just you, it's not just you. When you feel like it's me at the workplace, me in my day-to-day life, and no one else, it's not no one else. Elijah's going to feel that way. We'll look at that more in chapter 19. But it's not you. You're not the minority. But however, let me say this. Christians, by the way, Sometimes we can get discouraged, especially in a cultural moment where you feel like, does anyone believe this anymore? Does anyone like Jesus? Why are your Christians the enemy of the culture? Like, what is going on? I feel like we're losing every battle. Let me say this. The church historically has actually thrived when it's been the minority and not done too well when it's been the majority. My point being is we shouldn't be fearful in those moments when you feel like you're the minority in, in the culture in this moment. That's actually the time where God usually shows up or God takes a select few or faithful few and does some amazing things. And there's probably countless examples we can go through, but I want to recommend this book. I thought that was very powerful, very insightful, something I needed kind of in this weird moment that we've been in the last few years. There's a book by John Tyson named Creative Minority, and it's essentially this idea that Christians thrive when they've been the minority. Like, don't feel like, well, there's like five of us and like, 
10,000 of them. Like, what do we do? Actually, that's when the Lord a lot of times does his best work. And I love what he said about this. John Tyson wrote, he says, the world needs creative minorities who will challenge the status quo, think outside the box, and chart a new course for the future. In many ways, that is our jobs. How do we challenge the status quo? How do we say you want, you're envisioning this future, but there's a better future that's offered to us in the name of Jesus? The point being is don't ever feel like, oh, we're losing. It's okay. It's okay. Usually God does his best when you feel like it's one versus all. It's probably not the case that it's that, but I, the idea is that God can do some great work when it's you with him. You with him, not him with you. When you with him, just okay, Lord, show up. So he goes, let's gather everybody. Now, n- notice the speech he gives, because they're, they're left quiet. He's like, how long will you kind of linger between the two? Actually, verse 21, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Notice this. He's basically saying, like, come on, how long can you keep living this way? Week after week, you're, you're trying to maybe keep God or the Lord, Yahweh, the one you're trying to keep in the back of your mind. How long will you serve him and the Baal? How long will you intermingle the two? You can't do this. This question of how long is so important. How long? Like how long until the Lord truly has all of you? How long until you stop kind of playing games with God and you either are all in or you're, you're all out? He goes, this, there is this idea of scripture. There is this binary idea of scripture of you're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. You either gather or you scatter. You kind of can't be on this fence without Jesus. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Well, I believe in Jesus, but not in this particular teaching of Jesus. And that's not how it works. I believe in Jesus, but I don't like the church's interpretation historically and hermeneutically, so I'm going to go with my interpretation. That's not how it works. How long will you kick against the goats? How long will you fight against the one true God? This question just lingers. He's like, you kind of can't be on the fence with God anymore. You can't be like, I'm kind of for Jesus, but I don't like the, this interpretation of this teaching of Jesus. I'm kind of for Jesus, but I also like this idea of this cultural Baal and what it offers. It just does not work that way. He goes, how long will you linger between the two? Let's actually really slow down and talk about this because there is this kind of cultural idea I think that's really put on the church. And there, there's this idea that like, come on, Christians, can't you just chill out? I mean, whether you're a Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or Baha'i or whatever you are, don't you understand that all of you have a piece of truth? All of you are walking the same path that's really on the same mountain. You're taking a different path, but you're going to end up at the same point. And there's like usually those kind of analogies they'll give like that. I'm sure you've heard of that one. You're all on like a different path, but the same ends. It's actually this idea of, of maybe even coexist or pluralism. It's one of the most offensive, I think, teachings there is to every faith. You're saying, don't you all essentially teach fundamentally the same thing? And you're like, no. I remember being at a college campus in Irvine where I used to do some college Bible studies. We had one night. It was a really cool night. We had um, an imam uh, representing the Muslim faith. We had a rabbi representing the Jewish faith, faith, and we had a Christian pastor representing the Christian faith. The idea was they all got to share kind of like, here's what we believe. Here's why we believe it. At the end, you do a Q&A, and it's really funny how there's always like, come on, don't you all believe the same thing? And it's like, were you not just listening? Uh, how do you interpret Jesus, uh, Jews? A uh, teacher, definitely not God, not a prophet, try to cause rebellion. Jesus is just another rabbi that basically led people astray. Muslims, how do you interpret Jesus? He's a prophet. He's a pretty good prophet. He's not God. God is not visible. 
So no, he's definitely not God, and there's a greater prophet after him named Muhammad. Okay, Christians, how do you interpret Jesus? Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. He died for the sins of the world. He's the only Savior of mankind. Don't you all believe the same thing? It's the most offensive thing you can say to all of us, right? And it's funny how you kind of hear this used a lot, a lot. It's bizarre to me. It's this idea of like, okay, maybe you've heard this kind of, it's like an elephant, and you think about it, one of you has the tail, and you go, oh no, the elephant is like long and thin, has a little fluffy thing, and one of you grabs the leg, no, the elephant is big and strong and firm, and one of them's touching the side of the elephant, no, it's, it kind of feels like a rhino over here, and it's kind of, the texture, the point's like, but it's all the same thing, it's just all an elephant, all of you just have a piece of it. Again, whether it's the, the analogy of the mountain, the analogy of the, the elephant, all these different things you kind of hear throughout, like it always pushed on Christians. I'm laughing. It's like, wow, you think no faith is superior except your faith. You're saying no one sees the big picture except me. I see the big picture. That's what you're saying. So in a way to try to make everyone seem equal, you're coming across as the superior one. You're the one saying, I see the whole mountain. You don't. I see the whole elephant. You don't. Okay. And there's such an, that, that is like, you're trying to say, don't act superior Christians, but you're doing that. And at least we're being honest. We're saying, no, no, we really do believe there's one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like, we're not going to shy away from that. My, my point is, so often in scriptures, there is this either, this either or. There is either you are for him or you're against him. You're gathering or you're scattering. You're either saying Jesus is who he claimed to be and all of his teachings go with him, not just the ones I like. Either Jesus is who he claims to be or he's not. Either the Lord is God or Baal is God. What Elijah is doing is what we have to do today, which is like, it's not okay to be on the fence anymore and pretend that you can worship Yahweh on Saturday <laughs> or Sunday and then worship Baal Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And we think, oh, they did that then. We don't do that now. Of course we do. Of course we do. Of course we come and we can worship God one day and then worship something else the next day. And Elijah's saying, no more. You're either all in or you're all out. Jesus said it that way. Jesus bases, I wish that you're either hot or cold, but you are lukewarm, so I'll vomit you out of my mouth. There's this idea of scripture, of this binary idea of like, it's either for him or against him. God has every right to do that. And we kind of like, want to play games with God, be on the fence. Elijah's like, this showdown has to happen. How long, how long will you live like this? It's miserable to be on the fence. It's miserable to serve God partially and serve this other thing part. You know it's miserable. I know it's miserable. It's miserable to be like, oh, I'm kind of for God, but I'm kind of for these other things that take the place of God. How long? Charles Spurgeon said about this, how many more sermons do you want? How many more Sundays must roll away wasted? How many warnings? How many sicknesses? How many toilings of the bell to warn you that you must die? How many graves must be dug for your family before you will be impressed? How many plagues and pestilences must ravage the city before you will turn to God in truth? How long halt ye between two opinions? This is response to this text. How long? This question of how long, it just obviously lingers. You know, it's not okay to just be like, I'm kind of for him. It's funny because I'll just bring this up. Um, I saw a lot of Christians talking about Elon Musk like a year ago. Let me bring this up. I think this is interesting. Elon Musk showed up on a podcast one day. Whether or not you know the podcast is okay. It's the Babylon Bee podcast. He gets on the podcast. They're talking to him for like over an hour about things. They basically ask him a question about Jesus and believing in him and starting to him. And here is his response. And, and I put it in quotes. He says, hey, but hey, if Jesus is saving people, I mean, I won't stand in his way. Sure, I'll be saved. Why not? right? This is like the wealthiest man who's living, basically, right now. And Christians saw this, they're like, Elon Musk is a Christian! And I'm like, wait, what? And they're like, yes, he's a believer in Jesus! I'm like, hold on, what did he say again? It's like, again, uh, hey, if Jesus is saving people, I won't stand in his way. All right, I'm not trying to say he's not. 
What I'm trying to say is, I don't know if that's confession of faith. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, this is what we do. We're like, oh, with, with Baal and God. It's like, we're kind of there. I believe Yahweh is God, but I also believe this Baal, this, this God of wisdom, this God of sex and fertility, this God of rain, this God of the sun. I also believe that. I'm sorry. Like, you can't have both. The answer of like, sure, why not? That's not a confession of faith. The idea is like, it's either, either yes, like yes, I'm for him or no. But basically there's this call from Elijah and there's this call from Jesus. He goes, hey, you're either for or against. Either Yahweh is God or Baal is God. We gotta stop playing games where like, I can go either way. I can, you know, maybe one day it's this, no, no. You're either all for him or all against him. He says in verse 21, if the Lord is God, follow him. Listen, this is basically my, my, my cry, <laughs> the point of like, life. Take your time. Explore. If Yahweh is God, if God revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus, as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If Yahweh is God, if Jesus is God, follow him. But explore that. Don't dismiss it and be like, well, I considered it once, but by the time I hit eighth grade, I knew everything. I knew he wasn't God. Okay, would you relook at that? Would you, re, would you re-explore that? This is, this is literally everything. It says in verse 24, he says, you call upon the name of your God, I'll call upon the name of the Lord God, of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. All right, so here's the showdown. Here's the contest. It's necessary. They go, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Here's number two. Number two is this. Uh, the false God is silent. The false God is silent. They're like, let's go. Let's do it right now. So we know for hours, from morning until noon, they're crying out, Paul, answer us, hear us. Verse 26 is what it says. They took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, like pathetically. <laughs> Baal, hear us. So limping around the altar. And yo, I'm not saying this is biblical, but trash talk is in the Bible, all right? I'm not saying it's prescriptive, but it, I don't know, maybe. Um, I love what Elijah does in verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Yo, I don't know, I love this. I'm not Elijah. It's hard for me to respond. That I, I really want to, but I do like the Elijahs. I'm thankful for the Elijahs part of the church. They're like, maybe your God's in the toilet. That's literally what he said. He's just calling them out this way. He might be asleep. And they're like, no, and they're crying out louder. The, the funny thing, obviously, you, you understand, like, whether it's in this pagan culture or many different cultures, uh, their God was like a man. Like, they made God after their own image. So in many ways, their God did need to use the bathroom. Their God did need to sleep. Their God, you know, we're told in the scriptures, our God does not sleep, right? Like, the idea is like, oh, maybe your God has these human, he's more human. He gets tired. Maybe he's thinking and philosophizing. He's musing. He's philosophizing. He doesn't know all the answers. He's basically saying, your God is impotent. Our God is omnipotent. My God doesn't need to sleep. My God can hear. My God doesn't go on a journey and go, oh, I, I forgot about you guys. Sorry, I, I've been gone for a while. He's like, maybe your God's like that, but that's not my God. Maybe your God can only go so far, not my God. It's funny how when people struggle with the idea of God to me, it's like, oh, you know, I just really struggle. How did Jesus turn you know, five loaves and, and a couple fish and feed thousands of people? I'm like, I don't struggle with that. If there's creation, he can take care of that. <laughs> if God can speak and life can come to existence, Everything else is pretty easy to be. Um, but it's funny, it's like, do you want to put your God in this box? God can only do this much, but can't do that much. He's like, oh, maybe your God's sleeping. And he's just kind of mocking, belittling. Here's what Psalm 135, verse 15 says. It says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. 
so do all who trust in them. Eventually, it's like you become what you worship. You're not thinking. You don't know how to dialogue about this. You don't know how to think about this, per- perceive this, because you're becoming like what you worship. And this is basically what he's calling out. Here, here's the idea. We might view them as primitive people, crying out, cutting, performing, dancing. We might say, I can't believe they would do that then. L- let me just say this. I think in some ways they're smarter than us, because here's why. They realize something that I don't know if a lot of people realize, which is this idea. Everyone here worships something. Either you worship a Baal or the one true God. Everyone worships something. You're like, I don't. Yes, you do. Either you're worshiping the Baal of money, and that's what you're after, the Baal of wisdom and education, and you think you can outsmart God. Everyone worships a Baal or the one true God. There was a Baal for everything. You think of it, there was a Baal for it. Same thing with Greek mythology, same thing with so many mythologies of the past. They had a God essentially for everything. And we think, no, 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 we're, we're, so, we're so much further along. Like, we, we don't do that anymore. We're people of science. We're people of fill in the blank. And that is still the Baal of your life. That's still the thing you go to for a sense of meaning and value and purpose. And I do believe that they had something, they knew something we don't know, which is you're either going to worship a Baal or the one true God. And we have to see that this is not just for a select few. Listen, they're crying out and their God is silent. I put it this way. A false God demands your performance and offers zero relationship. Notice what they're doing. They're like dancing, singing, hours on end. I mean, okay, by the way, the length of their worship does not determine the strength, right? So just so you know, it's not like, oh, your church worship for four hours, stronger. They're like worshiping for hours and hours and hours, right? The length did not determine the strength. But they're worshiping for hours and hours and hours. Silence. They're, They're performing. They're singing. They're dancing. They're crying out. They start to cut themselves. Silence. We have to see here that um, religion always demands you to perform. It always says, get up and do something. Maybe if you do something, the God or gods will be pleased with you. Maybe if you perform in some way, God will be like, that person, that, look at them. They must take this serious. I'll reward that. Our God does not demand performance. He longs for relationship. It, you're gonna, we're going to see in a second Elijah's prayer. It's like so personal. It's 60-something words. Versus hours and hours and hours. Elisha's like, hey God, you're the one true God. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm your servant. I'm doing everything according to your word. Will will you please pour out your fire? It's just such a beautiful relational thing versus jump, sing, dance. Not good enough. Longer, longer, longer. I think for so long I viewed God as, as this. I think for a lot of my early life, like teens into young adulthood, that kind of idea of like God was demanding performance from me and God wanted me to do these things for him rather than just know him, rather than just have a relationship with him. It's not about I need to dance, perform for God. It's the idea that God already did it for me. And it's not about like, what can I do? You know, it's sad because here's what always happens. This always happens in religion. The idea is there's always some sort of like self-torture. I got to perform, I got to dance, I got to sing, I got to cut myself, there has to be blood. That is not just a, an ancient thing. I remember talking to, when I was a youth pastor, right? And this is, it's weird how times have changed in this way. I actually want to point this out. It's weird how I do think in the, I don't know, the 90s, 2000s, whatever, post that time a little bit, a big thing obviously happening, still does happen, I don't want to diminish it, but there's a, a lot of cutting that was happening, right? A lot of cutting in the church, outside the church, people who feel like I'm a failure, I don't deserve anything good, so I'm going to cut myself, I need to feel something. And it was so bizarre. I remember talking to one, a girl one day after service, and she was just showing me her scars on her wrists, and she's like, I feel like I'm worthy of nothing. I feel like God can't love me, and she's cutting, and she's 
bringing pain on herself. And this story came to mind. I was like, do you, do you understand that this has been an ancient desire? People feel like they're far from the God or far from the deity, so they have to cut themselves. But can I tell you, there's a God who came to us, and he was cut for us. You don't have to shed your blood anymore. He shed his blood for you. And just that idea of like, what God, what is, where is there a God that does that? What other world religion says God came to earth and he bled? What other world religion, what other worldview says, no, God left it all, not that you have to perform for him. He came to you, and not that you have to bleed to please him, but he bled for you. You see, this is so different than any worldview or faith. We're saying God actually was cut. God actually bled for you. So you don't have to, you don't have to feel like a failure. God took on your pain, your suffering, your misery. God bled so you don't have to bleed. And I do believe this is still a true thing. If you feel like I failed or I've gone too far, I've done certain things, God could never love me. Do you know what, just like, do you have any idea what I've done? And maybe you feel like, like a masochist. I need to like beat myself like Martin Luther. I need to whip myself on the back. Or maybe you feel in that way of like, I'm just not worthy of God's love and God's grace. Jesus says, come boldly to the throne of grace. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. No one is worthy. But he bled. But he came. This is so different than what the Baals are asking for, essentially. They demand your performance. They demand your blood. God's like, let me give my own. You see, the one true God, he's not silent. God had to speak. God had to walk among us. If there is a God, I don't think it's sufficient for him just to be in heaven and be like distant. God's like, you know what? Actually, I'm going to come to earth. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to walk among you. This is the God we worship. We don't deserve a God who demands you to cut, demands you to cry out, demands you to do something. We had a God who already did all of those things for us. It, this is fascinating to me, by the way. Why is there such a, like a, a, a fascination, I think, whether pagan cultures or modern culture, to harm the body? Why is there that? I mean, we see this, this I mean, l- we are walking through a very bizarre time where in the name of like gender identity and ideologies, we are masticating, we are literally mutilizing bodies of children. For what reason? It's crazy to me. It's like, yes, because your God, for some reason, there's a fascination with the gods of this world to you harm yourself. You cut this off. You do this. That baby in the womb, let's just put some scissors to the brain and suck out its brains. What is that? What is that about? I think it's just playing into the Baals. It's playing into this demand for harm. Why? Satan's like, I can't attack God, but I can attack human bodies, the ones who are made in the image of God. I, I can't get to him, so I'll get to his people. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's why I think there's such a low view of the body. Sure, you want to change and mutilate your body? Go for it. Sure, you want to get rid of that thing in you? Go for it. When the Bible's like, no, there's such a high view of the body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not this low view of the body. It's such a high and beautiful. This body is sacred. You don't have to be cut. You don't have to do anything to yourself, any sort of self-harm. God experienced all of that for us. And there's such a high view of the body. Not this low view. There's just such a weird desire for it. Verse 28 says, They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. It's like when you give your kid, like, a phone, like a fake. I give my kid, like, I don't know, when he was, like, really little. Like, here's a banana. Hey, you know, and like, hey. And it's like, no one's there. <laughs> it's fun. I like, laugh. I feel like that's what they're doing. Like, yeah, God. And you're like, no one's there. What are you doing? What are you doing? And the louder they get, the longer it gets, doesn't mean anything. I love how it goes from, like, loud and crazy to just Elijah's, like, 60 words. Let's talk to God. 
So let's look at number three. Number three is this. The true God is revealed. The true God is revealed. Look at verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, verse 30, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. This is, this is fascinating, right? Do you not see what's happening right away? It's like the people are dancing, cutting themselves, crying out. All of Israel's like, oh, nothing's happening. It's been hours. Like, what's going to go on? Elijah's like, come close. Come near. God is going to do something. Don't be on the fringes. Come near. Watch God move. When you invite someone in, you're basically inviting them to examine. Truth gives permission to examine. It gives permission to come on in. It's like, it's okay. We're not afraid. You come in close and see what's really going on. It's not something, we're not hiding any skeletons in the closet. Come, come, come near. Actually, Hosea, who would be a prophet to the northern kingdom, said this years later in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. And Elijah's like, come on, come near. I just think there's this invitation, obviously. This, like, Hosea picks up on this. Jesus picks up on this. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all of those who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. There's this invitation from God to come. That Elijah, come on, come near. People get, get closer. Come near. I really do believe there's that same invitation right now for you. God's like, come near. Come near to me. Come, draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. Come to me. All those who are weary. Elijah's like, come on, come near. Verse 30. And then uh, we see in verse 30, it says, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Do you know what this means, by the way? I have to like point this out, verse 30. It means at one point in time, there was an altar to Yahweh, to the one true God on Mount Carmel. But what happened? This false religion, the Baals, tore down this altar. Uh, religion is destructive. It does tear down. Elijah is like, I got to build up. God's like, let me build. You tore this down, let's rebuild. There was something once there to God, sad also. It's like, it also speaks of their history. You once served the true God, and this is in shambles. But God's like, I want to restore, and I want to rebuild. Isn't that good news? That maybe at one point in time, there's an altar in your life to God, and, and maybe it's in shambles now, and God's like, I want to repair that. I, I want to rebuild that. There might have been like something there with God years ago. And maybe you feel like that. Ah, that thing's in shambles, man. That area of my life to God, broken. God's like, let's rebuild that altar again. Come near. Let's rebuild. Verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, <clears throat> to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. God said that to Jacob. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. I have to point this out. Um, how many tribes are in the north? How many tribes are in the north? Come on. No, 10, 10, it's okay, it's okay, sorry, 10, sorry if I tricked you. How many tribes are in the south? Two. How many stones does Elijah, Elijah put together? 12. There's not supposed to be this brokenness. There's not, there's not supposed to be this division. It's not supposed to be like, okay, I'm in the north with the 10 tribes, and okay, Ahab, you're the king of the 10 tribes, so let me make sure I have 10 tribes here, 10 stones here. Do you know what's doing? All the people of Israel got together, and how many stones they see? They see 12. What does that remind them of? Oh, there's two missing. Oh, we shouldn't be divided. Oh, this shouldn't, it shouldn't be like this. He's like, yeah, we're so much stronger when we're not divided. Church 2024 is coming up. We're so much stronger when we're not divided. We're so much stronger when we're not divided. The 12 tribes, let's get the 12 stones together. Come on, let's build it around the altar. And this is what he does in verse 31. Then we'll keep reading. Verse 33, this is like my favorite part. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it out on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Do you know why this is amazing, by the way? Like you have to, what's the context? There's a drought. The context is actually uh, Ahab sent Obadiah to go looking for grass so the animals didn't die. Because water is so rare. There's a drought in the land, man. Remember the brook that Elijah was drinking from in chapter 17? That dried up. 
And Elijah's like, even though there's like no water, bring me 12 pitchers of water four and three times and let's just throw it on the altar. And you can imagine like people who are probably like there and thirsty, like this is such a waste. What are you doing? We're so thirsty. 12 pitchers of water. It's like, it's not a waste for God. It's not a waste. And not only that, there's, there's no question now, was it a gimmick? Did it maybe, you think about it, it's just dry. In California, where I grew up, right, fires just happen. It's just dry. It's like, oh, there's a fire today. I'm just ashing your car. It's a normal Tuesday. I don't know. It's just like, it's, things are just so dry, right? And you can almost chalk it up to like, it's just dry. I mean, of course it's going to catch fire. It's been a drought for three years plus. Like, of course it's going to catch fire. It's like, no, let's just make it, re- let's, let's make it seem impossible. Until that's filled with water, the trench is filled with water. People are like salivating, like, I wish you could drink that water. And he's like, I'm gonna, it's going to seem impossible. And God's like, I love it when it seems impossible. Hey, because you know what? Ahab and the prophets of Baal, your God came and do it while it's dry. <laughs> it came to like a random spark. Someone takes a magnifying glass. Like, oh, look at fire. Like, nope. Nope, but just like, yeah. God's like, make it tough for me. He puts 12, 12 basins of water, fills it up. And it says in verse 36, And Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That's it. Sixty-something words. It's not ours. It's not blood being shed. Lord, would you just answer me? I love it. This, pr- this prayer, it's purposeful. It's precise. It's that Ecclesiastes, you're God in heaven, I'll let my words be few. It's just, God, I don't need, you know what you need to do right now. Let me acknowledge who you are. I'm worshiping the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, and I'm your servant, and this is your word. Lord, let fire fall down. Do you know that God, like, wants to do that? So God's not, God's not, like, ask again, hours. Now cut your, no. God's like, I want, I want to do this. Fire falls down, and the people are amazed. Now, a few things I have to point out with this. This is interesting to me. This story is repeated, actually, in Luke chapter 9. If you remember, and here's why I just want you to stay with me. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples are passing through Samaria. And this, they don't receive Jesus. Remember that? And then you have, you have uh, James and John. We're like, Jesus! I'll put, like, should we call it on fire? This is Luke 9, 53. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? <laughs> I love this so much. Jesus is walking through Samaria. He's like, how about we just call it, you know, the Samaritans aren't receiving you. Let's just call down from high, uh, fire from heaven and just consume them. And Jesus, right after this, the verse 54, he's like, uh, I did not come to destroy lives, but to save lives. I don't know if you know that. I'm Jesus. I did not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. By the way, this gives such insight into the disciples, right? And who they are, their mindset, their mentality. It's off. They have this holy zeal, but it's just off. Let's call it on fire from heaven and consume them like Elijah did. It almost seems like, wait, do you think that the fire consumed them? The fire consumed the sacrifice. It didn't consume the wicked people of Israel or even Ahab. The fire didn't consume them. The fire consumed the blood sacrifice. I think you're missing it. Jesus would say later, just a couple chapters, stay with me. Luke 12, Jesus says this, verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. How distressed I am till it is accomplished. He says, I, listen, I came to send fire on the earth. I wish it was kindled, but I have to be baptized. What is this baptism? This baptism with fire. This idea is the fire does not consume the people. Think about this with Elijah. Fire coming down from heaven and consuming the sacrifice was an act of grace, not judgment. Let me say that again. The fire that came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice with Elijah 
was not because God's judging the people, it's actually an act of grace. And Jesus is saying, I have a baptism with fire. This is like, it's stressful. <laughs> but I have this baptism. The fire does not consume, it consumes me. What, what, does he, what do you mean? Jesus bore the judgment and the wrath of God. Because the fire came down on him, it doesn't have to come down on me. The fire came down on the sacrifice. The fire came down on Jesus. That judgment fire. That fire of grace. Again, the sacrifice being consumed by fire was not God judging the people. Man, you gotta understand, 1 Kings 18, that is, a, that is a fire of grace. I consume the sacrifice, not you guys. Do you understand that right now we have this opportunity, this option to receive Jesus, and the fire consumed Jesus, the sacrifice. He, the fire consumed him, so I'm not consumed. Either the fire of God falls on Jesus or does fall on you. And if it, it fell on Jesus and you believe that and you receive that, that fire is a fire of sacrifice, of, of grace. Just a fire of grace. Know that you are not consumed because of Jesus, the sacrifice who bore that fire, who bore the wrath of God. He's that sacrifice on that wood with Elijah. In a sense, he's that picture of going, I'm the sacrifice that will take on the wrath of God, not you guys. This is not a fire of judgment, but a fire of grace. You have James and John who are like, let's call on fire from heaven and consume them. He's like, I think you read the story wrong. This, is the, this fire is not about them consuming them. It consumed me. I'm the sacrifice. And because I took the wrath of God, you don't have to. Do you believe this? There are always this, these stories of just opportunities saying, believe this, receive this. Note it's so sad, you guys. Note it's so sad. We see that, what did the people do? I'll actually read verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Of course. What do you do in that moment? Fire comes from heaven, just, it says it licks up the water, and like, just all the water in the trench. And it just licks it up, the, the sacrifice is consumed, and they're like, ah, uh, he's God, he is God. Like, of course, of course. But what's really sad, it obviously was temporary belief. The signs and wonder from heaven did not last very long. This is what's sad, because after Ahab, the next king's evil, the next king's evil, the northern kingdom never did not have an evil king. The south did, they had about five good ones, but the northern kingdom from there on out always had evil kings. It seems as if they believe, and maybe temporarily, and maybe some of them we could see actually go down to southern Israel, go to Judah, go to the right temple. Yes, maybe. But the point is, it didn't really last. People think, if I get a sign or wonder from heaven, I'll believe. It's just not the truth. If God were to show up right now and do this, I'm sorry, he's done that many times. And, and it's proven it does not work. It actually says it this way in John 12. John 12, it says, but although he had done so many signs before him, they did not believe in him. That's what it says about Jesus. Jesus did sign after sign after sign after sign, and they still do not believe in Jesus. Why? Because signs don't work necessarily. Here's what Jesus said about signs in Matthew 12. Listen to this. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's that sign? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Do you hear this, you guys? Jesus is like, and a wicked generation wants a sign from heaven. Elijah, the people, they had a sign from heaven. Moses, nation of Israel, they had a sign from heaven. God's like, I constantly gave signs. Jesus came on the scene, gave signs. Signs didn't do anything for them. Jesus is like, here's the one sign you're going to get. The one sign. The sign of Jonah, huh? The one sign you're going to get is the resurrection. That this is the one sign you get. This is it. I'm going to die, and three days later, rise. I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. He's literally saying, this is all you get to believe. No other signs. We, like, still to this day, like, I wish God would just do this amazing thing in this unique way. No, too bad. Jesus made it really clear. A wicked and adulterous generation wants a sign. No more. He already gave us the last sign. 
the sign of his resurrection. I love it because Easter is just a few weeks away, and there's no greater sign than the resurrection of Jesus. That there was a man named Jesus who bled and died, and he did physically and literally die, and three days later he rose again. And this changed human history as we know it, and we'll look at that more on Easter. But the sign of the resurrection is what they get, this is what we get. No other signs. Trust me. God, right now, fire falls down, you might believe for a week, and then be like, did I imagine that? It does not work. We know that. We know it does not work. We know the only sign we get is the resurrection of Jesus. See, this, there was a sacrifice that was consumed by fire. There was a sacrifice that was consumed by fire, and Jesus was like, that's me. This baptism by fire. This idea that I'll receive the wrath of God so you can experience now the grace of God. It's not a fire of judgment, it's a fire of grace. Let me say this, experience right now, you're, by believing in Jesus, calling upon Jesus, looking to Jesus, there is this baptism by fire. Jesus took on the wrath of God so that I could experience the grace of God. And here's what we're gonna do. We are gonna take communion in just a second. Because as we take communion, this is a way for to us to look at this little cup with this little cracker and this little juice, but it is a small taste and it's a small picture of Jesus saying, no, 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 this is not just a cup with juice and a little flaky cracker thing. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. That you don't have to shed your blood as the prophets of Baal did. My blood was shed for you. They could shed their blood all they wanted, never, never be right with God. God's like, I shed my blood for you. Church, I just want you to know this. Listen, communion, if you would, look at it, grab it, because we are going to take it in just a moment. But if you look at the communion, let me just be really clear. If you do not believe in Jesus, please do not take this. There's no need to take this. Why remember or, or do something you don't even believe in? But maybe you're sitting here and go, I actually do believe this. I actually do believe Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I actually do believe his blood was shed for my sins, that I could have forgiveness and be right with God. Then listen, take, eat, and drink. If you believe this, eat this, drink this. If you don't, definitely don't take this. I would actually encourage you not to take this. But if you say, no, Jesus, I believe that your blood was shed for my forgiveness. I believe that your body was broken for me. My body doesn't need to be broken. My blood doesn't need to be shed. I don't need to do any, Jesus, you already paid it all. You already did it all. I just want you to say, take, eat, and drink freely. Listen, this is a time actually to give thanks. When Jesus met with his disciples and they did communion, it says he broke the bread and he gave thanks. And so this is a time for us to give thanks. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your body that was broken. Thank you for your blood that was shed. Church, I just want to invite you in this time, we just want to reflect a little bit on the, the body and the blood of Jesus that was shed for you and for me. Thank you, God. As a, that young girl was like, I don't want to keep doing this. I feel like a failure. I feel the need to cut myself. Listen, you don't have to do that. Jesus' blood was shed for you. He was cut so that you and I could be right with him. You're not a failure. Blood's already been shed on your behalf. You're now victorious. So we take and eat and drink in a way to say, Jesus, thank you for this victory. Thank you for the victory that you have given us. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to pray, stand off to the side. I'm going to take communion. While worship is happening, you take communion. You take, you eat, you drink. Pray over it. Thank God for it. Celebrate it. Celebrate that the fire, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, not on us. Say thank you, Jesus, for that. This is just a time to thank him and praise him. So Father, we want to thank you because there is no one like you. God, even though we have failed time and time again, even though we don't deserve it and we try to maybe perform in the past, we know how much that fails. Jesus, we just want to rest in you, look to you. Jesus, we thank you that in that upper room, you let us know there is a new covenant that is offered by blood and that is your blood. We now have a new relationship with you, God, that though we are sinners and God, I'm a sinner who needs your grace, 
God, please show grace and mercy. We thank you that you have it in your son, Jesus, and we need it again and again. And we come back to this table of communion again and again because we need it. We're reminded of what you've done. We're reminded of what you've given for us. And so, Jesus, we just want to thank you. God, I just ask for everyone in this room that they would believe on you, Jesus, whom you, Father, have sent, that they would receive you, this free gift of eternal life that's found in you, God, let them no longer serve the Baals of this world, the other gods of this world, the other things they think that might satisfy them. Lord, it's not if. We believe you are God, so we will follow you. And I just ask that uh, that would be true in this place, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. As you guys are ready, just take, eat, and drink, and we will be worshiping in the meantime.